God proclaim He is the only God because He's able to keep what He promised and He proved it by fulfilling them. Peace to you, friends and members. My name is Luke. Uh, my wife, Anita, and I are members here with our four kids, and I serve as an elder for the church. Several years ago, one of my family's favorite soundtracks was from the musical Hamilton. The musical is about one of United States founding father, Alexander Hamilton. Okay, so here is a bit of U.S. and British history for us. Most of us know that the United States was originally British colonies, and in 1776, 13 colonies in America declared independence from Great Britain. And Great Britain was one of the major world powers during that time. Some of the other great powers of the time included the French Empire, the Spanish, the Russians, the Ottoman Empire, or Turkish, and of course we have the Qing Dynasty over this part of the world. So in that musical Hamilton, there is a song called You'll Be Back, a song that is meant to be satirical and, and, and funny. Uh, it is sung from the perspective of King George III. King George is a king over the British Empire during this time. He is obviously upset when the, the colonies rebelled and declared their independence. So the song expressed his belief that these colonies will crawl back to the British Empire once their rebellion is crushed. So King George in the musical, he sings this. You'll be back, soon you'll see. You'll remember you belong to me. You'll be back, time will tell. You'll remember that I serve you well. Oceans rise, empires fall. We have seen each other through it all. And when push come to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Okay, let's, let's stop there before we lose ourselves in the music. <laughs> Did the United States come back to Great Britain? History tells us that they did not. In fact, if someone told King George at the time that the U.S. would become a world superpower, well, I think he would laugh. So the question we want to ask today is this. Who, who can predict the future? In 1776, no one knew that the United States was going to become a world power, let alone a superpower. In 1776, no one knew that the Soviet Union was going to become the other superpower as U.S. adversary, that there was going to be this Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union started in the 1950s, and, and if you're older like me, I remember being in middle school, sitting in a classroom, and seeing the Berlin Wall being broken down, which was a signal of the end of the Cold War. And in 1991, the Soviet Union officially dissolved. And do you think back in 1991, someone could predict that February 24, 2022, 
Just this past year, one of the former Soviet Union Republic, Russia, will invade another one of the former Soviet Union Republic, Ukraine. No one will have known. So our question today again is, who can predict the future? Well, we will see in our passage today an incredible prophetic message from God through Isaiah. Isaiah will name the name of the person that God will use for his purpose some 150 years future to Isaiah. Isaiah will have long died before this prophetic message was fulfilled. So we're back in the book of Isaiah today in chapter 44 to 45. If you have your Bible, you can start to turn there to Isaiah chapter 44. And we will read through sections printed in the bulletin, but I do encourage you to read through the entire chapter, 44 and 45 later, if you haven't yet. Last time when I preached, we learned that God speaks and demonstrates to his people that we are redeemed for God's glory, saved to be God's witnesses, and made new to declare God's praise. The message of the book of Isaiah is essentially the same throughout, that God will bring judgment, but God also promises salvation to his people. This message is repeated in many different ways, how God will transform the corrupt old into the glorious new. This recursive or, or progressive or progressively repetitive manner of writing or teaching, it, it's kind of like hearing music from a surround sound system. That all the speakers are all around, even though they are all playing the same music, it comes from different direction, all slightly different in volume of the frequencies to give a fuller and richer sound. So this is also my hope with these messages from Isaiah. So I pray that God will allow us to appreciate the richness of his promises. So if you remember from last time, we are in history in the book Isaiah. Um, Isaiah wrote these messages from around 720 to 740 BC. And around 701 BC, we know Jerusalem fell to the Assyrians. And what we will be reading today, however, the writing is addressing the Israelites in the Babylonian exile between the time of 608 and 538 BC, almost 100 years after the Assyrian invasion. So when Isaiah is writing these messages, the Israelites have no idea that about 100 years after Jerusalem falls to the Assyrians, that the Babylonians will conquer the Assyrians. Isaiah, we were, Isaiah's writing we will read today is addressing the Israelites during this time of the Babylonian exile, telling them that they will be free from their exile by the Persians who will conquer the Babylonians, and the Persian king will allow the Israelites to rebuild Jerusalem. We, of course, have the benefit of history to know that it is the Babylonian that puts the Israelites into exile and that it is the Persian that conquer the Babylonians. Before the Israelites, during Isaiah's time, they didn't have exact details of these nations, the name of these nations, but they were given some specific. They were told that they're going to be in exile and God named by name this person Cyrus who will be used by him to return the Israelites to Jerusalem. And we have the benefit of seeing history played out and fill in these blanks perfectly. So it's just simply amazing. Well, it is a privilege to open God's word with you today. Like I mentioned before, we don't have time to read through the entire chapter 44 and 45 this morning. 
So let me go ahead and read for our selection, starting from Isaiah chapter 44 in verse 6. You can follow along in your Bible or in the bulletin. Chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I'm the first and I'm the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I pointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. Skip down to verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you and you are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depth of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forests, every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the city of Judah, they shall be built, and I will rise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. And continuing chapter 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to lose the belt of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Skip down to verse 11. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me? Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hand that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his way level. He shall build my city and set my exile free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts.
This is God's word. That is a long passage, but, but, but what stood out to you? And I feel like as we were reading, God just saying again and again, I am the Lord and there is no other God. Well, to summarize today's passage, I believe the main idea is this. God proclaimed he is the only God because he's able to keep what he promised and he proved it by fulfilling them. God proclaimed he is the only God because he is able to keep what he promised and he proved it by fulfilling them. God proclaimed, God promised, and God proved. As an outline, we'll have three observations and three uh, three observations and two applications. Three observations on what God has done, that God has proclaimed, promised, and proved. So number one, God proclaimed. Number two, God promised. And number three, God proved. And two applications on what to do with prophetic messages. So the first application, prophecy yet, prophecy yet, prophecy yet to be fulfilled. And number two, prophecy now, prophecy now in action. We'll get to that later. So first observation, God proclaimed. God proclaimed he is the only God. He is the only God. So let's look backwards at the passage we just read. In chapter 45, verse 6, it says, There is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Move backwards, 45, 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Keep going back, 44, 24. I am the Lord, who make all things, who alone stretch out the heavens, who stretch out the earth by myself. 44, 6 to 8, the Lord says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. God proclaimed and declared that he is the only God. You know, if any of us ever, ever wonder if the Christian God is just one of many gods that exist, well, this is a very clear proclamation. Either the Lord God is the only real God or he is not. He leaves no possibility that he is a God and there are other gods. I would like to help us point out four traits from our passages that God says make him the only God. So four traits. Four traits of God. Number one, God is eternal. God is eternal. Verse 6 says, I'm the first and I'm the last. Meaning God is there at the beginning and that he will be there at the end. Revelation 22, 13. Jesus who claimed to be God says the same thing. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So God is eternal. The second trait, God is the creator. God is the creator. In chapter 44, verse 24, it says, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And in 45, 7, it says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 
we see that God is the creator. He created all things. And not only does he make well-being, he creates calamity. God is the creator. The third trait, God is omniscient. Or another way to say that is God is all-knowing. God can predict the future because he knows the future. 44.7 says, If anyone else is God, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. And instead, this is indeed what God is doing by giving messages through God's messengers, which he fulfills. So God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. And the fourth trait, God is the rock. God is the rock. A rock is a symbol of strength in the Old Testament. A rock is solid, so it can offer protection. The rock is immovable, so it can be a secure foundation. And it stays the same, so it can be a reliable hope for salvation. God is the rock. And can any other being claim all these attributes, being eternal, being, creator, being the creator, being omniscient, and being the rock. We see the Lord God through Isaiah and Fathic says, no. God says, beside me there is no God, no rock, no others. So our first observation, God proclaimed that he is the only God. Let's go to the second observation. God promised. God promised salvation to those he redeemed. God promised salvation to those he redeemed. So even though the Israelites have transgressed and sinned against the Lord by not keeping their covenant to obey him, God says in verse 23, For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Jacob and Israel are used in these passages uh, interchangeably to refer to the nation of Israel because Jacob in the Bible was renamed Israel by God. And we also see in verse 21 to 22, God says, You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgression like a cloud and your sin like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So here we get a definition of what redeemed means. Redeemed means that our transgressions and sins against God have been blotted out or have been removed. And God is the one that does the redeeming. God says, I have blotted out, I have redeemed. And in verse 6 and, and 24, God calls himself Israel's redeemer. God is a redeemer who redeems his people. Let me take a pause here and let, let me ask all of us here. Are we redeemed? You know, do we even know that we need to be redeemed? You know, that all of us have transgressed and sinned against God? You know, when we don't acknowledge God, we are rebelling against Him. We are all heading toward God's promised judgment for the rebellion, you know, which is called hell in the Bible. So how can we be saved? Where is our salvation? God promised salvation to those he redeemed. Or maybe I should say it like this. God promised salvation. 
God's promise of salvation is only to those that have been redeemed. God's promise of salvation is only to those that have been redeemed. So how are we redeemed? When we repent, acknowledge we have transgressed and sinned against God, and believe that Jesus paid the price of redemption, then we are redeemed. Just as Jesus was raised to life, now we can enjoy God's promise of salvation and life to be His redeemed. Now, Christians are those that have been redeemed by Jesus. If you're not yet a Christian and would like to be, you know, come talk to me or another WSBC member after service. You know, we would love to help you to know how to do that. So let's go back to our text. God promised salvation to His redeemed. You know, for the Israelites who are in exile, they know Jerusalem, and essentially the capital of their nation, has fallen to the Babylonians. You know, the temple built by King Solomon in Jerusalem was completely destroyed in 586 B.C. And now here is God's promise. You know, look there in verse 26. God who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. You know, what more is that God tells the Israelites who will help bring about you know, that rebuilding? Look at verse 28 there. God who says to Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Isn't it incredible that God made this promise to the Israelites? And what was unspoken about this promise that the Israelites will be saved from their exile. And actually in chapter 45, verse 13, it is more explicit. God says of Cyrus, He shall build my city and set my exile free. And it couldn't have been clearer than that. So our second observation is God promised salvation to those He redeemed. Let's move to our third observation. God proved. God proved His omniscience and sovereignty. His omniscience and sovereignty. No easy to make claim and easy to make promises, right? But as I said, the proof is in the pudding, right? So for maybe non-native English speaker, the proof is in the pudding is just an expression that means to find out how good a pudding, and maybe you don't even know what a pudding is. You know, a pudding is a kind of dessert, you know, maybe kind of like douhua. You know, to find out how good the pudding tastes, you have to actually taste it. You know, the proof is inside the pudding by tasting it. So, you know, it's easy to make claim and make promises, but the proof is if these claims and promises actually come true. Do they actually come to fruition will prove God actually is omniscient or all-knowing and sovereign over history. Now, God was very specific about his claim on naming Cyrus as the one who will bring about his purpose. So let's fact check God. How's that? Let's fact check God about his claim on Cyrus. 
So the first claim in chapter 44, 25, uh, 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So who is Cyrus? And did he help rebuild Jerusalem and help lay the foundation of the temple that was destroyed? Well, we see in Ezra, chapter 6, 2-3, to, two to you know, an ancient record was found documenting this. So let me read for you from Ezra, chapter 6, 2-3. In Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Medea, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered and its foundation be retained. So this is a fact. Cyrus, the king of Persia, issued a decree that enabled the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and lay the foundation to rebuild the temple. So let's check the second claim. In chapter 45, 3, verse 3 to 4, it says that you, referring to Cyrus there, may know that it is, it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. So maybe the question is, did, did Cyrus know God before he became the king of Persia? We do see in secular historical record, you know, Josephus, the great Jewish historian, records a story in which Cyrus, reading Isaiah's prophecy, was so impressed with the divine power to tell the future that he eagerly thought to fulfill what was written about him. So again, this is a fact. You know, Cyrus didn't know God and was impressed that God called him by name. You know, Cyrus could have rejected the prophecy, but instead he actually fulfilled it. The third claim, let's look at chapter 45, verse 13. He, again, you know, referring to Cyrus here, shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward. So the question here is, did Cyrus set the Jewish exile free without a cost? Again, Ezra chapter 1 verse 3 writes, you know, Cyrus speaking to the Jewish exile, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Ju Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. Ezra 6, 45 then says, Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem, be brought and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. Again, this is a fact. Cyrus set the exile free to return to Jerusalem. Not only did he not require a price, but he paid for the cost and also returned the gold and silver vessel that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple. I mean, who would do that, right? 
I think it's sufficient to say God proved his omniscience and sovereignty by orchestrating people and history to fulfill his prediction, his claim, and his promises. So we learn today, God proclaimed he is the only God because he is able to keep what he promised and he proved it by fulfilling them. So what? So what, you may ask. We can know this is, you know, know this like we read books about history. You know, a lot of things are recorded in history, but if it doesn't affect us, if we, if we don't apply what we learn to our lives, you know, some of these facts and knowledges are, are, are kind of meaningless. So how do we apply this? Why does God proclaim he is only God and prove it by fulfilling his promises? Why does God do that? Well, for the Israelites, God was looking for faith. He was looking for faith. God wanted the Israelites to believe him and have genuine faith in him. God was looking for faith. And for us, some 2,500 years after those Israelites, we have Jesus claim he is God. He is the same as the Lord God. He claimed that God the Father himself, God the Son, is one. Jesus also proved that he was omniscient and sovereign. Let me show you. When Jesus was entering Jerusalem before he was crucified, he said, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat, yet sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this. The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. Now that's in Luke chapter 19, verse 30 to 32. You can look it up later if you want. Luke chapter 19. Just as he had told them, it's a phrase I want you to remember. It's a phrase I want you to remember. When the disciple was looking for a place to eat the Passover meal, Jesus said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciple? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepared there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Luke chapter 22, verse 10 to 13. Again, just as he had told them. One more. After Jesus rose from the grave, he said to his disciples, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Luke chapter 24, 25 to 26. Part of what Jesus was referring to, quote unquote, that the prophets have spoken, was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53, 4 to 6, prophesies this about Christ. He says, surely he has borne our griefs and carry our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, 
and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wound we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. He had to die to pay the cost of our redemption. So why did Jesus prove that he is God by fulfilling prophecies? Again, just like the believers in Israel's day, Jesus is looking for faith. Faith in believing he is God and faith in believing his promise. Faith in believing he is God and faith in believing his promises. First today, I want to suggest faith apply in two ways as our application. Faith apply in two ways as our applications. Number one, prophecy yet. Faith in prophecy in the Bible yet to be fulfilled. Faith in prophecy in the Bible yet to be fulfilled. And number two, prophecy now. Faith in prophecy in the Bible now in action. Faith in prophecies in the Bible now in action. So number one, prophecy yet. What are some prophecies in the Bible that are yet to be fulfilled we need to have faith in? Let me give us two things that we should remind ourselves of this week. Number one, when we see the brokenness of our world, we need to remember the Bible promise there will be a perfect world for the believers. When we see the brokenness of our world, we need to remember the Bible promise there will be a perfect world for the believers. Second Peter 3.13 says, According to God's promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which, the righteous, in, which righteousness, in, in which righteousness dwells. According to God's promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. When we see the brokenness, the brokenness of our world, we need to remember the Bible promise that there will be a perfect world for the believers. That is a prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. And number two, the second thing, when we feel discouraged, when we feel discouraged with the brokenness inside ourselves, we need to remember the Bible promised God will complete the work he started in each believer. When we feel discouraged with the brokenness inside ourselves, we need to remember the Bible promised God will complete the work he started in each believer. Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. When we feel discouraged with the brokenness inside ourselves, we need to remember that God promised, the Bible promised God will complete the work that he started in each believer. Now we need to ask God for faith to believe in these prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled and ask God to help us. And our second application, number two, prophecy now. 
what are some prophecies that are in action now that we need to have faith and believing? These are prophecies from the Bible, Christian experience in our current time. Let me suggest two things. The first thing is, there is hardship and persecution now. There is hardship and persecution now. The Bible says being a Christian will not be easy. In Acts 22, the Apostle Paul was encouraging the believers to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus himself says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. So when we face hardship, when we face persecution, we need to have faith and believe this is what the Bible tells us will happen. That there is hardship and persecution now. The second thing, we have God's presence. We have God's presence and the Holy Spirit now. We have God's presence and Holy Spirit now. John 14, 16, Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, referring to the Holy Spirit here, to be with you forever. He will give you another helper to be with you forever. An example of a way that God's presence is that the Holy Spirit will give us words to speak when we need it. My closest experience of this is maybe the second or third year after we moved to mainland China. And we were in a much smaller city at the time you know, with a Chinese-speaking fellowship. I would lead worship in songs because you know, that's what I love to do. I remember after just praising God in songs, you know, I felt the Spirit leading me to pray. You know, my, my Chinese at that time was rusty and basic, and I didn't know a lot of spiritual terms in Chinese, but I decided to follow the Spirit and pray in Chinese anyways. You know, somehow words came out, and I think that was my closest experience to speaking in tongues. Or maybe I was just saying gibberish and people were too polite to point it out to me. But anyways, Christians need to have faith and believe that the Holy Spirit is in us. You know, not just in those special circumstances, but daily. That His Spirit is in us, that we have God's presence through the Spirit now. Well, we should conclude. In the beginning, we asked, who can predict the future? And last week, our beloved Pastor Mark finally made it back here to preach to us. And who knew back on May 3rd, 2020, that the next time he, we would hear him preach in person would be three years later, right? Well, God knew. He didn't tell us because maybe in the grand scheme of things, is not that important. And for the redeemed, we will see each other eventually all in heaven. But what God did tell us today are these. God proclaimed He is the only God. 
God promised salvation to those He redeemed, and God proved His omniscience and sovereignty. The reason He told us these things is to help His people to have faith in believing He is God and have faith in believing His promises. So the last question to end the message this morning, will we believe and have faith? Will we believe and have faith? I encourage us to discuss this with one another later. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we we thank you for making yourself known to us. We would be in total darkness, not realizing that we needed to be redeemed by Jesus, had you not made yourself known to us. We ask for your help to believe and to have faith You know that we are weak. So we thank you for fulfilling your revelations to help us trust your promises. Praise you for being the rock of our salvation, the immovable hope that we can hold on to. You have promised to complete the work that you have started. And you promise new heaven and new earth for those made righteous by Christ to dwell. So help us, help us to hold on to these promises by faith. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.